Well, I am excited. We're going to jump right back into the book of Galatians, which we started last week, a series that we are calling Gospel Freedom and what it means to be a gospel-centered community uh, that lives, as we looked at last week, in, in what I like to call the circle of grace, uh, God giving grace to us and us uh, through the transforming work of his Holy Spirit, uh, giving glory back to him uh, by a continued uh, growing uh, intimacy uh, with him uh, by his spirit as we stay anchored in the gospel. And what I want to talk to you guys today about is what gospel centeredness looks like. We're just going to be considering just a few verses in chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Uh, and I want to just begin with this this statement. Door of Hope was founded on four pillars. Uh, the four pillars for us, that is the grid uh, by which we uh, look at everything we do through, uh, is number one, the cross, number two, community, number three, simplicity, and number four, uh, the, uh, the city. Now, here's the thing. I'm constantly trying to rethink the language around those pillars to make them even more and more clear because if I was to ask any one of you what cross means to you or simplicity means to you or community or city, uh, the answers could vary because they're, they're words that can contain a lot of different ideas. And so I, as I was working actually this week on the pillars as we're kind of brainstorming, we just got back from an elder retreat about the future of Door of Hope and the structure uh, by which we're going to move forward. We're coming up to our 10-year mark. And I said, we spent the last 10 years uh, figuring out kind of how to be a church. Let's spend the next 10 years planting churches. And so what does it look like to be a family of churches? And, and it required kind of a, a refocusing even of the pillars. And so this first one, the cross, I, I want to just bring greater clarity to what we mean by the cross, that the cross is first and foremost our identity, that we are a community that is committed to the gospel of Jesus, full identification with him and transformation into his likeness by the Holy Spirit. And as, as I state below, everything we say about creation, incarnation, and spirituality must be anchored in the cross. I like how uh, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, when I, I was uh, sitting under his teaching last year in London, he said, everything we do as a church must communicate for God so loved the world, which means it has to be anchored in the gospel. I think that the constant temptation as individuals and as a community uh, to become therapeutic over gospel-centric cannot be overstated. What I want you to understand is that the reason the cross is the first pillar uh, and is the pillar really that informs all the others is because it is the center of all that Door of Hope does. And in other words, we are a gospel-centric church that this is our equilibrium because the natural temptation as, as people and as communities of faith is to spin our wheels on the peripherals of Christian living and lose sight of our Savior. That the heartbeat of the gospel is, is relational. It's about a restoration of relationship in three directions. And the moment we lose sight of Jesus is the moment we lose sight of relationship. And then we are left to our own to or own devices to determine how it is that we ought to live, which causes the church to fall into those, those therapeutic tendencies or overly prescriptive tendencies 
to have conversations about how to have a, how to have a better marriage, how to, how to live a fulfilled life, how to enter into society and, and, and care about justice and mercy, how to do all these things that actually are important and matter, but if they don't flow out of the central thrust of the gospel, uh, we lose our identity as, as what it means to be Christians. We are not, I would like to state, a support group giving man-made answers to the challenges of existence in society, but the body of Christ who comes together to hear and be transformed by the word of the cross and the resurrection proclaimed. One of the questions that I'm going to put forth to you today is can you actually articulate what the gospel is? When we were going through the... Uh, the, the merger of two churches with Redeemer as they joined Door of Hope, I, I went through a series of meetings, and one was a family meeting at, at Redeemer to allow the people of Redeemer to ask questions about what would it mean for them to be a part of Door of Hope and to really ask hard questions about what we believe. And one gentleman at the very end of a very long day raised his hand at the very end of the meeting. He goes, yeah, tell us the gospel in two minutes. And I was like, just for a moment, and I consider myself evangelist. I was like, oh, I don't, sweet Lord, I don't know if I'm ready for this question. <laughs> but it actually was an amazing exercise. Can we articulate quickly the heartbeat of what the gospel is, what the good news is? Remember last week I gave you what the good news is. The good news is God's rescue plan for humanity that was accomplished through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus, that Jesus has come to save us from the present evil age, that through faith in him alone, we receive forgiveness of our sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and are brought into the family of God. Reception of this good news means freedom to live a transformed life. And this is why it is so important that we stay anchored in the gospel because it's easy uh, to move into a sort of therapeutic moralism. Uh, and as Lutheran theologian Gerhard Ford said, superficial optimism breeds ultimate despair. What we need is what Luther declared as naked confidence in the mercy of God through the gift of his son, which leads to the freedom we long for, that is to live differently. So, in looking at this text, what I want us to see today are really three things. What Paul is going to dig into for us is that when we are controlled by the gospel, we will live with a willingness to confront in love any threat to its purity. Remember, Paul is writing a letter, uh, has written a letter to the churches of Galatia, a whole region. And after he had planted a series of churches and left that area, false teachers came in. Those who proclaimed faith in Jesus, but they were proclaiming, Paul only gave you part of the gospel. It's the gospel plus. And what was their plus? For them, it was faith in Jesus combined with obedience to the Torah, the Old Testament law. And Paul is quick to remind the Galatians in his letter that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and that he has ushered in an entirely new age, the new creation, and that we are not to return to the old age which is passing away, but all that we need and all that God has to say to us is wrapped up in his son. 
And when we are born again, we are given the gift of his Holy Spirit, who is the one that brings transformation. Not our obedience to the law, but our surrender to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And so when we are controlled by this gospel, we will live with a willingness to confront in love any threat to its purity. We will live with the conviction that the gospel does not change and cannot be added onto. We will live with the motivation to please God and to serve people because our loyalties have been realigned by his gospel. I always like to remind you guys, the narrowness of our message is what opens us up to the vastness of God's love. We don't graduate past the gospel. We are a gospel-centered community for a reason. Repetition is king because it is the gospel that brings life and restored relationship and nothing else will. So, first, let's look at the confrontation. And here, Paul begins his letter uh, with a, a, an alarming statement. If you guys have ever read the letters of Paul, you'll notice that he always, after his greeting, he praises the churches for the things that are going well before he brings the hammer down. Uh, with the churches in Galatia, he is so fearful for them losing their way, for them moving toward another gospel that he brings the hammer down out of the gate because it's not his reputation that's at stake. It's God's glory that's at stake. It's the gospel, the good news that is meant to bring them freedom. It's his love of Jesus and his love for this community that brings about a serious confrontation. And what he says is that we need to confront any threat to the purity of the gospel, for there is a path that can lead us to another gospel. In other words, there's a path that can lead us to nothing. Because look what Paul says. I'm astonished, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, when we look at this verse, it's clear that Paul is taking us on a path, a path that leads to destruction. He's reminding us, actually, of the same warning that we find, actually, in the book of Hebrews, when the preacher writes uh, to the church. Uh, he says, therefore, in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. I always like to remind you that it takes no effort to drift, that Christianity is a counterintuitive, countercultural movement that goes against the stream of society and, and societal norms. And if you get into a stream if you want to be taken over by it, all you have to do if you're in a fast river is just not do anything. And so Paul is clear that we are called to do something in regards to this naked trust in the mercy of God, and that is that we are daily to surrender ourselves to the gospel. We don't receive the gospel and then move on to better things, secret things, new things. No, it is the gospel that brings newness to life on a daily basis. And see what he says. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. You're actually walking away from relationship with Jesus, and he's, he has called you 
into the grace of Christ. You're walking away from relationship with God. You're, you're walking away from the gift of his love toward you in Jesus, and you're moving toward a different gospel. The drifting uh, is, is moving you to something that actually isn't even real. Because he says, not that there is another one. Because there isn't another gospel. Because the good news isn't something that can be manipulated or rewritten. But it's good news because it's about something that God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. It's good news because it's God's one-way love toward us. That his love isn't more for us when we're doing well um, or, or less for us when we're doing poorly. But that God's one-way love for us toward Jesus is wrapped up in who he, who he is. As I like to remind myself, uh, as, as the key to experiencing the victory and the power and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, is to humbly stand before the cross of Calvary and be reminded again and again that I'm not a bigger loser than God already knows that I am. And yet he uses me in spite of that because his grace is crazy. It's not like what the world offers. It's empowering, calling. Notice what he says. How are you so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel? I often wonder if maybe the churches in Galatia, as they listen to these false teachers that are giving the gospel plus, are saying that calling is actually about fulfilling your, your, the requirements of the law. And I, I, I think about this idea of calling, and, and we often get this confused as well. Because over the years as a pastor, many Christians have come to me and said, I'm trying to figure out what God's will is for my life. And, and what you're doing when you ask that question often is that you're trying to apply um, a, a secular grid to the gospel. That is that the gospel's primary role is to help you figure out how to fulfill your dreams. But we need to understand that autonomy which is what our society, as I said last week, declares the, is the ultimate goal of human existence, Scripture declares that's the essence of sin. And that our gospel freedom is actually found in our surrender of our autonomy and the reception of Jesus' lordship into our lives. And calling in... Paul's theology, and I think this is really important, which is a biblical theology, calling, notice this, this is, this is such a beautiful thing, is Paul's favorite terminology for the saving initiative of God. It's not about a task given, but it's about a relationship, an invitation to a relationship. It's about God's initiative toward you. You weren't even thinking about him, and he was already pursuing you. If you're here today, we need to remember that everything we do, that God is always previous. Someone said, what, what is God's part, and what is our part in salvation? Well, God did the saving, and you did the sinning. It's about his initiative. It's what the Reformation came to an understanding that the, that the sinfulness of the human heart is so great that we do not have the ability in ourselves to reach up and find God. We cannot save ourselves. You cannot white-knuckle your way up Jacob's ladder. It takes God's initiative toward us. That's why I say that God's love is elective. He chooses to love sinners in their sin. No matter how deep your sin goes today, God's love goes deeper still. You've dug yourself into a hole. Jesus' love will get into that hole and underneath it, and then he lifts us up. He sets us free. He loves us, 
It begins with God. John Stott says that the gospel is good news of a God who is gracious to undeserving sinners. In grace, he gave his son to die for us. In grace, he calls us to himself. In grace, he justifies us when we believe all is from God, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.18, meaning that all is of grace. Calling is not what you do. It is who you are invited to be in Christ. He who has called you into relationship with himself And to move away from the gospel was to begin the path to another gospel, gospel, which is destruction. Our identity in him is is what has the ability to transform the way we see what we do. And I think a lot of the reasons that we as as people, as individuals, and even as communities, the reason that we have a tendency to drift from the gospel is we are discontent with our place in God's story. And we think that the gospel is about God fulfilling our dreams rather than about God giving us a new perspective regardless of what our place in the world is. It's about falling so deeply in love that it becomes a new lens by which we are able to enter into existence. It's not a promise to save us from suffering, It's not a promise to to deliver us and to give us everything that we ever wanted. It's a promise that God cares about us and and says he will never leave us nor forsake us. Isn't it fascinating that the very thing that Paul's concerned about is, is that these false teachers are calling these Christians to leave the God who will never leave them, to rely on their own cleverness, their own effort, their own righteousness. And I don't care if you're the most righteous person that's ever lived. Luther was probably as close to to righteous perfection in regards to his obedience to spiritual disciplines. But you know how he felt every day until he experienced the radical grace of God? He felt damned. He felt damned and he hated the God in whom he obeyed. It wasn't until he saw the love of Christ coming at him and that God wasn't impressed with all of his activity, his busy work, that his life was transformed. And then the work that was, that was accomplished by Luther was all flowing out of this incredible intimacy. He was in love with Jesus. It was his devotion that led to his discipline. This is why it's so important that we don't get the gospel wrong because we often think, as I had a conversation with my father in Alaska, he said, I believe I'm a good person and God will accept my goodness. That's not the way the gospel works. Our identity in him is what has the ability to transform the way that we see what we do. Our calling into grace gives eternal significance to every arena of our existence. What I like to say is that fidelity to the gospel is what creates faithfulness in our character. So how do we avoid the pattern, the path to another gospel? Well, notice that it starts, he says at the end here, that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel, a distortion of the gospel. That is Jesus plus, and whatever it may be. If it's not the Torah, you just fill it in. What are, the, what are the laws that you create to make yourself feel better about your walk with God? And I, as I said last week, the litmus test that we're truly experiencing grace is that it always ends in a humbling gratitude. It's not frustration. It ends in this overwhelming sense that, 
On my worst day, God is crazy about me. And the more I believe that he loves me, the more I want to honor him through my total dependence upon the empowering work of his Holy Spirit. So how do we avoid the path to another gospel? So it began with the distortion of the gospel, some sort of false teaching that led to them drifting from the gospel. And what he says, Paul says here, is that the moment the gospel is distorted and the moment you drift, you actually have believed in a different gospel altogether. And there is no other gospel. So you're believing a lie. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He is the embodiment of truth. We don't move past Jesus. This is why churches can fall into such dangerous territory when they enter into good things. You see, have you ever heard of the phrase, the social gospel? Is there anything wrong with being engaged in justice and mercy? No, there's not. Should we care for the homeless? Yes, we should. Should we care about those who are the most broken and the frail in our society? Yes, we should. Do those things matter? They do. But if those things begin to override the centrality of Jesus, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm just using that as an example. I think that the same thing can be said, an obsession within the church on the role of the Holy Spirit. We've forgotten that the Holy Spirit's primary role is to point us again and again to Jesus. If we start focusing on the Holy Spirit and the sensational of doing signs and wonders and raising people from the dead and healing people of their sickness and and giving people spiritual words of knowledge and all these ways that people get wrapped up and excited about the Holy Spirit's work in the church. Do I believe in those things? Absolutely. I'm not a cessationist. Man, I always pray when I meet someone who's sick that God will heal them. I've entered into spiritual warfare and have seen demonic possession. I believe in those things. But if those things actually become the focus of the church and Jesus is left on the sidelines, it doesn't matter how good it is. It's called displaced affections, and it's problematic. This is why we are not a prescriptive church. If you came here for for prescriptive teaching, you really came to the wrong place. I don't even know if I could do it if I wanted to. So... I'm not saying that it's bad to be told how to do certain things, but I believe that the way that we live victoriously is we turn our attention again and again to Jesus. There is no other gospel. And the path from the true gospel, there's a, as, as Chesterton once said, he goes, there's, if Jesus is the way, there's one way to the truth, which means there's a lot of ways we can fall. We need to be careful. How do we avoid the path to another gospel? Well, first of all, we need biblical literacy. I I think that we are dangerously moving toward an age, if we're not already there, uh, in Charles Hedges' book, Empire of Illusion, which came out clear back when when Door of Hope was started, uh, said that America is moving toward the age of illiteracy and adopting its love for spectacle. We don't have the attention span nor uh, nor the discipline to engage thoughtfully any longer in our society. We have so fed ourselves upon entertainment and quick, uh, quick bits of information, we've lost our ability to focus. Our whole culture is ADD. Uh, what that creates, though, is it creates an overwhelming complex for us uh, who, as Christians, are told that our authority uh, derives from God's word. And in in an age in which truth is no longer 
held to as something solid but is, but is based upon personal opinion, it becomes increasingly difficult as Christians to hold tenaciously to the authority of Scripture. And so I, I'm more and more hearing, oh, I love Jesus, I'm just not sure that the Scripture is trustworthy. Well, why would you believe in Jesus? Because everything you know about him comes out of the written word. Now, I don't believe that the written word is what saves us. I believe Jesus, the living word, saves us, but the written word is what points us to the living word. And here is the powerful thing. is not only has God given us his thoughts in the form of a book, so we better learn how to focus. We better dig in. We're so grateful for the Bible project, but the Bible project is not gonna create a five-minute video for every verse of the scripture. The purpose of the Bible Project is to give us a hunger to dig into the scriptures themselves. It's not a replacement. Sunday sermons are not a replacement for your own study in the word of God. And it's not about you just marking off a box like I read this much today. It's about actually getting to know with in, in increasing degrees of intimacy the very God who has spoken and the world has leapt into existence. He has spoken into your life, new creation. How can we grow if we don't spend time with him? And how can we spend time with him if we don't ever open up our Bibles? Biblically illiterate churches are prone to another gospel. And believe me, if you think it's, oh, churches don't follow other, another gospel, if you look at the mainline denominations, I promise you much of what is called, for example, Methodism today has nothing to do with what Wesley started. The move from, from orthodoxy toward liberalism is rampant and, and the battle is, is urgent and we have to be a people that know how to discern what the truth is. And I want you to be able to know if I ever say something that is not true, I would hope that you have enough biblical discernment to know what that is. But you can't know the Bible if you don't spend time in it. And the Holy Spirit can't teach you if there's nothing to bring to remembrance. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he will bring to remembrance all that I have said. Well, how can the Spirit bring to remembrance the words that you've never even taken the time to read? The point of me challenging you on this is not to create a law but it's actually to make you students of what grace is because the Bible from cover to cover is about God's gracious movement of love toward a broken humanity. We need to be people of the word. It's living. It has the ability to transform us when we yield to the Spirit's instruction. And we need to be spiritually discerning because when we're, when we're, when we're a people that are entrenched in the word of God and spiritually discerning, yielded to the Holy Spirit, it is then that we will be able to confront in love anything that threats the purity of the gospel. This is what Paul is calling the churches of Galatia to understand. Do not leave the gospel. He's gonna explain what the gospel is again and again throughout this book because we need to be able to distinguish. As, as Luther said, the best Theologians are those that understand the difference between law and gospel. Secondly, we see conviction. And Paul's conviction is this, the gospel plus anything is another gospel. Look what he says in verses eight through nine. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Look at how far 
Paul is willing to go here. He's saying, if I come to you, if an angel from heaven comes to you and presents to you a different gospel, and he's going to be clear to show that the gospel that he received was the, gospel, was the good news directly from Jesus. It didn't come to him through men. It came to him through the revelation, direct revelation from Christ who appointed him to be an apostle, the carrier of the good news. If anyone gives to you another gospel, and I include myself in that, I love that because Paul, this isn't about Paul attacking those whom he doesn't like. It's about Paul's deep fear and concern of the church losing sight of the heart of God. And what does he say? Let them be accursed. That word literally is anathema. Let them immediately feel the full judgment of God, in other words. And the reason that he says that is because he recognizes how important, solid, biblical, gospel-centered teaching is. In fact, James uh, writes in his letter, he says, let few teach, for those who teach will be held to a harsher judgment. I like to personally forget that verse as much as possible, uh, because it should, but, but this is the truth. When I open up the word before you, do I take it seriously? Do I tremble with fear at the word of God, at its power, and its ability to bring transformation. And he says, listen, when people are preaching another gospel, what they're doing is they are adding to the good news of God's movement toward us in Jesus. And the gospel plus anything is another gospel. What were these teachers implying? They were implying that Christ's work was in some way unsatisfactory and that men need to add to it and improve on it. But remember what he says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, but far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, this is his center. This is why Paul says, I have determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is why he said, we, that is, as a church, preach Christ crucified. Those four words wield absolute authority for us as a church. That the gospel is not a message that we can alter, but we are called to be heralds, and heralds are given a specific message, and that is that we are to bring forth to the world, we are to introduce people to the living Christ. Do you live with that kind of conviction? Is Jesus so real to you that you care deeply that you are accurately representing him and that you are presenting him not as an ideology uh, to be followed or a set of rules to be obeyed, but as a living personality that you have fallen in love with. That's what's driving Paul's words here. What he's concerned about is how these teachers are portraying the gospel as something that's the beginning of knowledge, but it's not the end of it. And what he's saying is that you can't look through the cross, you have to continually look at it. For the cross continually reminds us of the greatness of God's love and the depth of our brokenness in, in revealing to us our daily need for his grace. But what do the false teachers offer? They're offering transcendence, not transformation. And Paul says, if you want transformation, transformation comes from a continual reliance upon the gospel of, good, of Christ, the, that good news. We will live with conviction that the gospel does not change and cannot be added on to. I'll just share a story. When I was touring uh, 
as a musician, just a few years into my faith, I started writing a ton of music for the church, and I went on tour full-time, and in, in 2003, 2004, I was still a very new believer. I was very zealous for Jesus uh, without a lot of grace for people. Uh, so I would say that my understanding of the gospel's transformative power and God's love toward others, my, my zeal surpassed my comprehension. And I, I thought of myself as some sort of like new Keith Green, which just meant that I should be a jerk everywhere I went. And that's not necessarily the healthiest thing. But I will say this, that I was uh, introduced uh, in really, uh, I I'd, I had very little interaction with the church up to this point in my life. And, and all of a sudden I was playing 250 shows, I would say in one year, I would say about 200 of those shows were at different churches uh, in every state in the United States. And so I was subjected, and I will say subjected to some weird stuff, which is one of the reasons I left the road and went into the pastoral ministry is because I was deeply disturbed at the lack of biblical teaching that was happening and the various youth groups that I was performing at, the, 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 the deep desire uh, to be man-pleasing, the attempts at making church this big, giant production uh, where we ape the world, but at a second-rate way. Uh, I'm like, why do we want to do the world? The world will always do the world better than, than us. Uh, the world will always do the world better. So why are we trying to ape its expressions? Uh, and, and I just became deeply disturbed. And I remember one time specifically, it was in Georgia, and it was this, this really, I mean, I like to consider myself charismatic, and maybe it's charismatic light, but, it's, but I'm, I, I am fully desiring to be led by the Spirit. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. But this church was like, it, it's, it was all about the sensational. And they brought in this, revivalist, the supposed revivalist healer from Florida to do this big teaching. They already were so aware that the teaching was so far outside of the parameters of orthodoxy that they came into the green room before we went out to lead worship, uh, and they said, don't say anything that contradicts the pastor tonight. And I'm like, and me being a punk, I just said, well, I won't as long as he doesn't say anything that isn't, that, that it's not true. And, and he just walked out. Like, and I got out there and all these people were laying under sheets convulsing. And the, and the preacher was, was declaring, no, he wasn't even talking about Jesus. It was all about God wants to bless you financially. God wants to heal you of every sickness. God wants to deliver you of all these. You, you're angry, you have a demon of anger. You're you're sick, you have a demon in a sickness. And it was like this crazy, like hodgepodge of like new ageism and pseudo-Christianity and, and biblical illiteracy. And I could not keep my mouth shut. And so I didn't directly rebuke the pastor. I just preached the gospel in between two songs. And all I did was <laughs> that the spirit's primary role is to point people to the living Christ that Jesus never promises that a life without suffering, that I've only been a believer for two years and I've read enough to know that every single one of those disciples died martyrs' deaths except for John, that Jesus promised that if you follow me, you will experience tribulation, that suffering is going to be a key component in actually pushing against the tide of society. It's a false gospel. 
all that to say I got in trouble from my booking agent and from, my, from the label the next day, and I was not asked back to that church, surprisingly. We need to hold that kind of conviction, though. We need to have, we need to be frustrated when Jesus is misrepresented because he's constantly misrepresented. But we are so fearful of being a people of conviction because to be a people of conviction means that we hold to the idea that we have discovered the truth and that is offensive in our culture. We need to be a people of conviction, but that is challenging when we live in a society and a city that puts a high premium on political correctness. And I'm not saying that we need to go around trying to be offensive for the sake of being offensive. I need to say, what I'm saying is that we need to fall so deeply in love with Jesus that we have to tell people about him no matter what it costs us. I've been thinking a lot about what is the vision for Door of Hope moving forward. And I do not want Door of Hope's growth strategy to be transfer growth. I don't want our growth strategy to be dependent upon people moving here from out of state. I'm grateful that you're coming, uh, that you've come to Portland and found a church to be a part of as you live in the city. But I believe that our call, there is 560,000 people that do not know Jesus Christ in this city. And our responsibility is to be a community that witness to that reality. And we're not gonna do it if we don't have conviction and if we can't articulate what the gospel is and we don't have a living, vital, intimate relationship with King Jesus. We can't look through the cross. We look to it. It is then that we will live with the conviction that the gospel does not change and cannot be added onto. Finally, motivation. What is Paul's motivation? Look, look what he says here. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would be, not be a servant of Christ. The false gospel is motivated by the approval of man, approval of people. The true gospel is motivated by the love of Jesus. And this just kind of further builds on the theme of what does gospel-centeredness look like? Do you believe that Jesus is with you, that he has given himself fully for you? Have you been so transformed by his love that it moves you beyond a fear of man? Because we are told that the fear of man is a snare. But the gospel, it sets us free. I think it's so sad that we would rather continue in the slavery and the bondage of, uh, in, uh, of our own autonomy rather than laying down our lives at the foot of the cross and experiencing the freedom of Jesus' very presence in our lives by his spirit. The challenge that we face today is that we have a society that bombards us with so much information, so, so many voices, that we have lost our ability to discern the still, soft voice of God. And Paul's making it very clear. I'm not here... I'm not trying to establish my authority for my sake. I'm, I'm trying to tell you that God has appointed me to bring to you this gospel. And if you throw out my testimony, then you lose the gospel. He cares about the gospel is what he cares about. And he says, I'm not trying to be a people pleaser. And we know that's true of Paul for the testimony in, in Luke's writing in Acts tells us that Paul endured endless suffering for the gospel of Jesus. Nothing could stop him from talking 
about the love of Christ. And it wasn't because he was trying to get another notch on, I led so-and-so to the Lord. And, and I don't think that that's a big issue in the church today. I think it's a much greater challenge to get people to talk about Jesus at all. And I just want to remind you that we are not a secret society. We aren't. We shouldn't be. We need to be open about our love of Christ. We need to be motivated by the true gospel, which is Jesus' love toward us. Why was Paul so motivated to preach the gospel? And look what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. He can't help it. He has to speak it out. It's, it's, it's written upon the very fabric of his soul. His identification with Christ and the powerment of the Holy Spirit keeps him. The Spirit, If the Spirit has control of your life, the Holy Spirit will point people to Jesus. Because he says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And for him, it's because the good news, if I could borrow from John Barclay, realigns and recalibrates our loyalties. Paul's loyalty is first and foremost to King Jesus. He says, if, if I was still trying to please men, I would not be, notice, a servant of Christ. The good news realigns and recalibrates our loyalties. It announces the incongruous gift enacted in Jesus, which is at odds with the normal conventions that govern human systems of value. He's saying Jesus has come into this world to deliver us from this present evil age. He has ushered in a new age, the kingdom age, the age of the gospel of grace. And he says, we are part of the household of faith. You have been purchased at a price. Your responsibility as we are responsibility as a church and what he's saying to the churches of Galatia, he's still speaking by his spirit to us today, which is that our responsibility is to be kingdom outposts, revealing to the world what is going to come in full when Jesus returns to this earth to establish his reign forever. I think that we need to come to this place where we find again what motivates us is not our attempts at discipline. I mean, we're in January. I go to the gym. It's obnoxiously full right now. Everyone's motivated uh, by a desire to lose those holiday pounds. But what's fascinating when February comes is that the gym is once again empty for another 11 months. And why is it empty for another 11 months? Because they aren't disciplined by a devotion to working out. They're disciplined by a desire to reach a particular goal, but they don't actually like the discipline itself. We need to understand that the only thing that will keep us moving toward the gospel is our devotion to Jesus. Only when our, our disciplines flow out of that love. I love him. I love representing him. That's what keeps us working out our salvation on a daily basis with fear and trembling. Not a fear of God that causes us to run away from him, but a fear of offending a good, gracious, loving God who has moved toward us in his son. And this is why Paul says, here's the issue. Part of the reason these false teachers have entered in is because they are fearful of what the gospel does to society, which is turn it upside down on its head. And isn't that often the case within the church? Compromising orthodoxy for the sake 
of peace, but I promise you it's false peace. May we be a people that realign our loyalties and live with the divine motivation to reveal to the world who Jesus is. I want us to be a people that make the cross our identity. Amen?